You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, turn them toward almost the very last page in them, the book of Revelation. Um, page 1040 is where you'll find today's text. We'll be in the, at the end of Revelation chapter 20 and uh, the beginning of Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Uh, and just let me put my own uh, voice into um, a pleading with you to join a Bible study. If you're on the fence, uh, I know you have a lot going on this fall, as do I and my family. It's always one of those things where you're weighing out time and commitments and priority. Um, we have found it, I have found it, incredibly fruitful Uh, when we've synced up our Bible studies with our sermon series, as we're doing with Nehemiah this fall. Uh, It gives us a chance um, to not only hear someone up here give you a digested version uh, of what's in that chapter of the Bible each week for 30 minutes, and then you go home and think about totally different things, but it really helps us immerse ourselves in the Word of God, um, contemplate it deeply, contemplate it in community with other people, uh, and and through that, um, further assimilate the wisdom and the truth of it into our lives. Um, so if you're on the fence, if I can push you over the fence to, to, to make that time and sign up for one, um, I think you'll find it to be incredibly helpful uh, and fruitful as I have. About 20 years ago, uh, an author who was also an NYU professor named Neil Postman uh, wrote an article called Science and the Story We Need. And he wrote in that article, in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin, science answers probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end, science answers probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Uh, Neil Postman was a humanist. Uh, a secular humanist. So he was not writing or advocating for a Christian view of the world when he penned these words. Uh, But as he studied our culture, he put his finger on something incredibly important. And that is this, that the vast majority of people, the people you and I rub shoulders with and cross paths with every day, are longing for a story to make sense of the world and to give meaning and purpose to their lives. And so in a cultural moment, where Christianity is often viewed as backward, unloving, even destructive and dangerous by some, there remains for you and I a red carpet invitation to speak up and to live faithfully as Christians in this world. Why is that? Because not only do we have that better story, the story is actually true. The story is actually true. It's the very substance of what God has revealed in time and space about himself and about us and about the world. There's both a push and a pull motive for us to be people of public faith. We have the call of Jesus to love other people, to make disciples. We might call that the push motive. In response to what Jesus has done, We are propelled outward to be people who speak up about him and what he's done in our lives and the difference he makes in the world. But on top of that, if Neil Postman is right, and I think he is, there's this massive pull motive too. There's a world that is begging for something more than the emptiness of an accidental life. And so today we wrap up 
uh, this foundation series. This, over this summer, we've spent uh, a lot of time digging into the core truths of the Christian faith. And as we've done that, I pray, I hope, uh, that it's not simply been an exercise of informing our minds, but that it really has stirred our hearts to believe or to believe again that the best and most satisfying story, which does inject this meaning and this purpose in life, is the story that God himself has given us, that he's revealed to us. This morning, we are considering the end of that story, the restoration of all things. And it'll be on the slide behind me. Uh, The doctrinal and confessional statement puts it this way. We believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels, when he will exercise his role as final judge and his kingdom will be consummated. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell, as our Lord himself taught, and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Christ, all sin purged and its wretched effects forever banished. God will be all in all, and his people will be enthralled by the immediacy of his ineffable holiness and everything will be to the praise of his glorious grace. It's a lot in there. And as has been the case in each of these weeks that we've looked at one of these statements in the doctrinal and confessional statement, that statement summarizes uh, a number of different texts in Scripture. Uh, But there's one particular text near the very end of the Bible that contains a lot of the elements of this statement all in one place. Uh, It's a text really about the end of the story of the world, about the trajectory and the resolution and conclusion to all of creation and to all of human history. And so we'll be in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, continuing through chapter 21, verse 8. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse five, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
write this down. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of, water of, li- of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this, inher- this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, you have given us your word as a light to shine upon our path. Help us to meditate now on that word and to follow its teaching that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until that perfect day, the day that we long for, the day, Jesus, when you come again. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Revelation is a uh, notoriously difficult book to read, uh, to understand. So whenever we read from it, I'd encourage you to start by remembering the title. Remember the title. This is a revelation. It's something that God is making known. Uh, It's not a riddle God is asking us to solve. It's not a code God is asking us to crack. It's a picture book, not a puzzle book. And the picture here is of the consummation of history and the consummation of the kingdom of God. Where is all of this heading? And the answer that this text gives is to the restoration of all things, to all things being made new. And we see in this at least three aspects of what that restoration entails. And we'll look at each of those this morning. The absence of sin, the presence of God, and paradise regained. The absence of sin, the presence of God, paradise regained. So first, the absence of sin. The end of chapter 20, as we read it, it's a glimpse of the great judgment. Jesus, who as our doctrinal and confessional statement puts it, the final judge, he is seated on his throne. And we read here his judgment is comprehensive. Uh, It involves both great and small. It involves both those who belong to Jesus and those who have rejected him. There's a resurrection from the dead. And not only of the righteous, but of the unrighteous. The righteous are raised to eternal life. The unrighteous are raised to eternal separation and punishment. Now let's not kid ourselves. Um, We're okay with that first part. We're okay with the righteous being raised to eternal life. Even if you're not a Christian, the fact that there are people in the world who believe something like that probably doesn't bother you. You might just think that they are the, the stuff of fairy tales and wishful thinking but it probably doesn't grate against your sensibilities. But the other side of that, that that the unrighteous are raised to eternal separation and punishment, or hell in short is the word that we use in the Christian faith. This is one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian faith for us to grapple with and to accept. And so many people don't. Many people don't, even those who who call and consider themselves to be Christians. Uh, As we'll see in a second, that leaves the work of God incomplete. It leaves sin undealt with. It it resigns God's power and goodness to be something less than they actually are and something that we desperately need them to be. But just as grievous as an error is to affirm the truth of this judgment, to affirm the truth of hell, without, as we affirm it, being cut to the core. 
without being wrecked with sobriety and sorrow and compassion for real people who reject Jesus and what that means for them. And, and as I read this passage, I just want to say, God forbid that we would ever become so callous that we could check a doctrinal box without our hearts breaking. I'll, I'll just be the first one to admit, I don't like to preach about hell. And there's an aspect of that that is for, I'm a recovering people pleaser. That's the way I describe myself. It's a, it's a, it's a deep-seated kind of addiction that I've, by the grace of God, grown a lot in. Some of my, uh, my, my discomfort in preaching about hell is, is my people-pleasing nature, Right? But also, here's why I don't like preaching about hell. Because it means I have to think about hell. It means when I prepare to get up here to share with you what the word of God teaches about it, I actually have to think about it too. And I, if I'm honest, I would rather not. I would rather not because what comes to mind when I think about it are the real men and women in my family and among my friends who have already died, who had no apparent connection to Jesus. And I think about the people who are still alive that I love, friends and neighbors and family members who don't want anything to do with Jesus at this point in their life. I would rather not think about it. And maybe that's you. What I hope you see this morning, what I see very clearly here in Scripture this morning is this, that you can't take the one without the other. We can't take this beautiful picture of Jesus making all things new without this hand-in-hand concept of his doing something with sin finally and forever. They're right here together in Scripture. And this judgment and hell, it's part of Jesus making all things new. It's part of him restoring all things. The reason that that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be, the reason that we experience what this text describes, mourning and crying and pain and death, it's because of sin It's because of our rebellion against God and all the effects and consequences of it. And the only way that those effects, the only way that those consequences become undone is if God actually deals with sin. Not sweeping it under the rug, not forever letting sin and all of its wretched effects coexist and compete with his perfect and good reign in his kingdom. God would truly not be a good God if he left sin undealt with. Several times this passage refers to the lake of fire. It says this is the second death. It's the eternal destination, in other words, uh, of everything and everyone that is not either righteous or redeemed. What is the lake of fire? I don't know exactly. Whatever form that takes, it is God's answer for how to finally and permanently deal with everything that persists in rebellion against him. And so we read in other places in the book of Revelation, it's the final home of Satan and all of his agents. It's the final home, as we read here in chapter 20, verse 14, where death and Hades themselves are thrown into. And we read here also that the basis for Jesus' judgment is this set of books that records the deeds of every human being throughout the course of their life. Each person is judged then according to what he or she has done. And for anybody who's honest, and for anybody who's read enough of the Bible to see that God calls us to a perfect and holy standard, this is a terrifying thought. This is a terrifying thought that we stand before Jesus and give an account for every word that we speak, for every thought that we entertain. I mean, who here would be excited for us to just take this last week and roll the footage on the screen of the conversations you had? or to roll the footage, if it were possible, of your thoughts 
and the different ways that you thought about what you might want to say or what you might want to do, but you didn't do. That's terrifying enough, let alone doing that in front of Jesus as he's sitting on a throne with the whole purpose of which is to judge. We learn in scripture there is none righteous. There's not even one. Nobody passes this, this judgment on his or her own merits. And this, of course, fits completely with the story of the world. We are the ones who, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, rebelled against God and brought about the corruption of his good and perfect world. We are, as 21 verse 8, uh, chapter 21 verse 8 here lists out, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars. Who are those people? That's us, apart from the grace of God. And so, praise God, there's another book. There's another book. It's not just the book of deeds. There's the book of life. And this is the book of all of those who have been saved and redeemed by Jesus. And praise God that Jesus here in this picture sits on his throne, not only as the final judge, but as the justifier, the one who has earned by his own life and death and resurrection, he has earned righteousness and yet offered himself up, dying and rising to redeem the rebels and to take their judgment upon himself. The book of deeds is important, but the book of life is ultimate. The book of deeds is important, but the book of life is ultimate. And God forgives and cleanses and counts as righteous those whose names are found in it. By faith, the, the work of Jesus counts on their behalf. And they are the ones then that experience the restoration of all things because God has put an end not only to their sin, but to all sin. And in light of that, for those who trust in Jesus, this judgment and these books being opened, what would otherwise be just an utterly terrifying thought, actually becomes one more opportunity for us to rejoice in the grace and the mercy of God. As a pastor named Sam Storms put it, we must not be afraid that with the exposure and evaluation of our deeds, regret and remorse will spoil the bliss of heaven. And he goes on to say this, if there be tears of grief for opportunities squandered, or tears of shame for sins committed, the Lord will wipe them away. And the joy of forgiving grace will swallow up all sorrow. And the beauty of Christ will blind us to anything other than the splendor of who he is and what he has by grace accomplished on our behalf. The book of deeds will either crush us or it will fuel an eternal kind of joy and rejoicing. That's one aspect of restoration, the absence of sin. Second, and just as importantly, the presence of God. The presence of God. Chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So at the restoration of all things, God makes his dwelling with his people. In a sense, uh, God is and has always been present, present with his people. But in the beginning, before the entry of sin into the world, we saw in the garden that God dwelt with Adam and Eve in a unique way. He walked with them in this depth of communion and the fullness of that. Even after sin enters the world, then we see God take the initiative to dwell with his people. And he does that in the tabernacle with the Israelites in the wilderness. He does that in Jerusalem in the temple that was built by Solomon. He does it in the person and work of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. But that was just for a very finite 
period of time, a little more than 30 years on this earth. Jesus ascends to heaven, and then the Father and the Son, they send the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of God, dwelling among we, his people, us, his people. And all of these are incredible experiences of the presence of God. And yet, they remain glimpses, tastes, or as the book of Hebrews calls them, shadows of the real substance. When all things are made new, the fullness of God will dwell with his people and will dwell with his people forever. God will be with us and we will be with him. Verse 7 of chapter 21, he will be our God and we will be his sons, which in a cultural context where only sons could be the recipients of the father's inheritance, that means whether we are Jews or Greek, slave or free, male or female, if your name is written in the book of life, everything the father has is now yours. If and when you imagine what heaven will be like, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? If you're like me, I like to run right for the what question. What's it going to be like? What will we do there? And, and scripture gives us whispers, a few answers, spoken relatively quietly about what exactly heaven will be like. Scripture, on the other hand, shouts its answer to the who question. The fullness of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit will dwell with his people forever. And as J.I. Packer put it, being with Jesus is the essence of heaven. It is what the life everlasting is all about. If we are so preoccupied with what we're going to do, we will miss that the point of it is that we will be with God, we will be with Jesus, we will be with the Holy Spirit forever in a perfection of communion with him. So the absence of sin the presence of God. Third, restoration entails paradise regained. Paradise regained. Chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A couple of things to observe from that. First, uh, we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes here. The new city comes down, as we read there. Scripture does teach us that when we die, we go to be with Jesus. There's an intermediate and actually unnatural state where our soul and our body is separated, and our soul goes to exist in the presence of God, apart from our body. But that's unnatural. So naturally, when the resurrection happens, when soul and body are united again, our, our eternal destination is not some ambiguous place in the sky. It's here. It's here. And second, we see here that the kingdom of God has progressed. It began in a garden. It ends in a city. And though it is paradise regained, it's not a return to the garden as it was when Adam and Eve left it. And far more than that just being like a cool trivia fact, a cool tidbit that now you've got and you can share with each other, this means that the restoration of all things incorporates the labors of God and the labors of his people throughout the ages. It means that the work that we do in this life for Christ and his kingdom will last forever. Or as a song that I heard recently put it, that everything that matters will not be destroyed. That God will take everything that truly matters and the labors that are done in his name and for his kingdom and he will incorporate them into the consummation of his kingdom. The beginning of chapter 21 says there's a new heaven and a new earth and that the first heaven and earth have passed away. 
Broadly speaking, well-meaning Christians have read that in two ways throughout the years. One way is that it's an obliteration of the old and a new start from scratch. The other way is that this is a cleansing and renewal of what is already there. And I want to challenge you this morning. If your understanding of the consummation of the kingdom of God is the first one of those, you will inevitably miss the heart of God. And you will miss the broader, all-encompassing scope of his purposes and his work in the world. Because see, you and I, humanity, we are not the sole focus of God's salvation and redemption. And we read that throughout other texts in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul writes that God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. Colossians 1, Paul writes again, Jesus reconciles to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then here in chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus is making not only us, but all things new. Here's the point. Rather than destroying, God renews and redeems what has been so marred by sin. To borrow a phrase from, from one of my seminary professors, God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he makes. God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he makes. The grace of God is always a grace that restores and not eradicates. The passing away of the first heaven and earth, it's a radical transformation. It involves a purging. It involves a cleansing. Evil must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. But the final state of God's kingdom does not result from an obliteration and a second creation from scratch. And the reason that that's so essential for us to grasp is because of how much that will impact our understanding of the gospel and the full extent of what God has done and is doing and will do in the world. See, we're prone to be reductionistic. At least I am. We're prone to be reductionistic. We're prone to start the story of the world in Genesis chapter 3 with the rebellion and the fall of humanity into sin. But that's not where it actually begins. It begins in Genesis 1 with God speaking the world and everything in it into existence. It begins with God then proclaiming over all that he has made. What? It is good. It is good. And sin has wreaked its havoc. It has made us desperately needy for God's redemption. But we are not the only ones who are desperately needy for the redemption of God. As Romans 8 puts it, Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul goes on to write there, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, not the totality of it. And so let's never attribute more power to sin's ability to corrupt than to God's ability to redeem and to restore through the work of Jesus Christ. God will not abandon his creation to the power of sin. The scope of what God made, everything, the scope of sin, its pervasiveness and how it affects every single aspect of life, it is this same scope that the redemption of God comes and sin redeems. As the line from Isaac Watts' famous Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, puts it, he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. 
Whatever sin has affected and corrupted and destroyed, Jesus has come to redeem all of that same scope. And this is why the consummation of God's kingdom is restoration. It's Jesus making all things new, not from scratch, but restoring them to their original goodness. The story begins in Genesis with God proclaiming over what he has made, it is good. And it ends here, verse 6, with Jesus proclaiming, it is done. It is done. Now, no doubt, some of you here this morning aren't sure if you believe any of this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this probably sounds too much like wishful thinking. It probably sounds fanciful like the stuff of fairy tales. But let me offer you this thought, if that's you. Whether you believe this or not, you want this to be true. Do you not? You want this to be true. If you recognize something is wrong with your own life, if you recognize something is wrong with the world, and I bet you do recognize that, don't you want there to be something that actually writes it? The end of so many other perspectives on the world, worldviews and religions, the end of so many of the other ones are, is avoidance or escape of evil and sufferings. Only the Christian gospel says Jesus will actually right all of the wrongs. Not ignore them, not escape them, but actually right them. So things like hunger and injustice and oppression and poverty and racism, even death itself. Though these things are with us today, they will not be with us when God restores all things. And so what I would say to you, if that's where you find yourself, is it will be worth all of your sincere searching to find out, is this just wishful thinking on the part of millions of people worldwide and throughout history, or might this actually be true? For you who are Christians, here's how this understanding and paradigm will impact your life. It will give you truly different eyes on the world. It will give you an infinitely better kind of hope. It will determine whether we live our lives each day as escapists or those who persevere. Conquerors even, to borrow the language of verse 7. The faulty view of heaven, which entails obliteration of this earth and a do-over from scratch, that will inevitably form us into escapists. Escapists who live our lives saying, get me out of here, God, beam me up so you can torch the place. And if that's our view, think about this, if that's our view, we will never develop authentic concern for all of God's creation, including a holistic, comprehensive concern for other people. We will never sincerely love, we will never sincerely seek to bless other people and the places that God has put us. Why not? Because our hope is tied to hitting the eject button and getting away from those people and places. It'll form us into leaning out rather than leaning in. But the view of heaven that entails God's cleansing and restoring, this will form us into those who persevere, who do lean in instead of out, who know that because Jesus is making all things new, because our labors for Christ and his kingdom last forever, that it's worth it, though afflictions will abound, it's worth it, the highest and best and most satisfying way to use our mist of a life on this earth is not to look for the escape hatch, but to participate in God's renewing and redeeming and restoring work. And when I look around this room and I think about the things that are going on in your lives and are going on in the lives of the people that you know and love, the heartaches and the conflicts and the addictions and the cancers and the deaths 
if we are gonna make it through this life with our faith and our hope intact, it will be only by confidence that one day all will be well. It's the only way. So hear and believe this, friends. God cares enough to redeem and restore rather than abandon and obliterate. He will not abandon his creation and praise God. That means he also will not abandon you. You will become a person who perseveres because he will not abandon you. He will bring you through. The consummation of his kingdom is the restoration of all things. So may we embrace this. May we participate in the whole scope of it. May we share this infinitely better story with the world. Because it not only is a story, it's true. And Jesus declares, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful that you are a God who does not abandon and obliterate the good creation that you have made. That you are committed to your creation. You are committed to your people. That you will make them those who persevere. We confess that we look for the escape hatch because this life is hard. And our own sin and the sin of others that affects us makes us long for the day that you will come again and restore all things. And so we ask for your grace to endure. We ask for your grace to persevere. We ask, Jesus, that you would strengthen us as only you can, but that this reality, that you will make all things new, would fuel our hope, would fuel our perseverance from this day until that great and perfect day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and until you do, may we feast and be sustained by your grace. I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.